Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. I grew up eating bok choy all the time. For my parents, it was easy to find it cheap at the grocery store in Chinatown. But up until maybe 15 years ago, I could have walked into my suburban Safeway and I would have never found bok choy or galangal or collard greens or epizote. Now, they sit alongside the lettuce, tomatoes, and asparagus. The fact that these produce, so much a part of our United Nations of fruits and vegetables, actually appear in most grocery stores across America, well, it's something of a minor miracle. And it all begins with the farmer. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, a story about three farmers and the seeds they're desperately trying to save. I'm Kevin Pang. Thanks for listening and stick around. Ever thought about opening your own fine dining restaurant? Or maybe you've dreamed of having your own hometown bakery full of cakes and other treats. As someone who's finishing up business school, I love daydreaming about these possibilities. No matter where you are in your culinary career, Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts wants to help turn your daydreams into realities. Escoffier helps prepare students for life-changing food careers. To find out more, visit escoffier.edu. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Reporter Gene Trin brings us today's story. The three farmers we'll be hearing from today, Mai Nguyen, the child of Vietnamese refugees, Rowan White, a Mohawk farmer, and Kristen Leach, a Korean-American adoptee, met each other in their seed-saving communities in Northern California. Even though their personal journeys, cultures, and what they grow are different from one another, they're all bound to the common mission of preserving cultures and cultivating a sense of belonging in the U.S. through their seeds and crops. It's something that resonates with me, as I've always been searching to understand who I am as an American-born child of Cambodian refugees. My family fled their home country in 1975 at the start of the Cambodian genocide under the brutal Khmer Rouge regime. My parents struggled and lost a lot, but I got to learn about what was lost through the stories they told over home-cooked meals made from Asian crops they grew in their garden. They cultivated Thai basil and chili peppers that would make their way into a comforting bowl of green curry that I knew took them hours to make. That dish signified love and home for me. That's why Vietnamese-American farmer Mai Nguyen's work speaks to me. The way Mai farms seems to bridge that connection between crops and a sense of home. In many ways, Mai, whose pronouns are they and them, was always destined for farming. My parents will say that I always talked about farming when I was a kid, that I wanted to live in a commune and and farm and just uh, be one with the land. Growing up as the child of Vietnamese refugees helped shape Mai's understanding of the world. 
Mai's parents both came to the U.S. by boat. Their father in 1975, after the Vietnam War ended, and their mother in the 1980s, years after the communist takeover. The two met in California, where Mai was born. As a kid, Mai remembers watching their parents work long hours in a new, unfamiliar country while learning a new language. Their mother worked multiple jobs. She was a teacher and then also was a hairstylist in the evenings. And so then she'd, you know, maybe come home at seven or later, depending on when her last client was. Uh, and then and then she would eat and then go to night school. Mai felt othered at times, and it wasn't tied to one particular experience. They say it was a culmination of more pervasive and insidious everyday interactions. Like the ways in which it's like we'd be waiting in line at hometown buffet and someone would say, or you know, the people in front of us would talk about how we should go home um, or, you know, just at school, you know, people asking me about my religion and you know, how kids would make fun of me for that. I could relate. I, too, couldn't quite pinpoint a particular moment where I didn't feel like my culture belonged in the mainstream. They all sort of blended in together. It could be as big as a stranger yelling a racial slur at me as a teen, to as small as not seeing any of the food my parents cooked in Western supermarkets. On a recent trip to my local Albertson store, I was surprised to find Asian produce like pink dragon fruit there. I felt seen. Mai saw firsthand the power of what growing and enjoying cultural produce could mean to displace people towing the line between two cultures. Mai remembers as a kid that their parents would be gone for most of the day working. But dinner was a special time when they'd all come together for a comforting meal cooked by Mai's grandmother with vegetables from their home garden. Mai came to realize food was an important way to root a sense of stability amid all the chaos of being refugees. I think coupled with it being a multi-sensory experience while being with family you know, and something that's positive, right? It was nice to just have that culturally relevant food kind of reinforce a culture of gathering with family that I think um, was really disjointed by kind of all the th responsibilities that my parents and family members had to take on. When Mai was a kid, their family joined other Vietnamese refugees in growing Southeast Asian crops in a large community garden in San Diego. Banana trees, sugarcane, and so many things that gave me a glimpse of a world that I didn't grow up in, but I heard so many stories about the world of Southeast Asia and where my parents came from. But while Mai was still young, a freeway was built through the community garden. It was yet another thing the Vietnamese refugee community had lost after already losing so much in the Vietnam War. You know, at the end of the war, books were burned, and there was the loss of a history of you know what had already survived: war, Japanese imperialism, French colonialism, Chinese colonialism. It's like, man, we survived all that, and then. Uh, all these books were burned. And that was a major loss of this connection to our history. One thing that managed to survive, however, were seeds. And seeds weren't just tangible items to Mai. They served as a gateway to the past, something that had been lost. By holding a seed, an heirloom seed, 
you can imagine previous generations, previous people who've held those seeds. It wasn't until Mai went to college that they had an epiphany that would bring them back on the road to cultivating crops, back to getting their hands in the soil. One day, while Mai was composting and sitting in a raspberry patch in a student garden, and nobody was around, they began eating row after row of the fruit. Mai came to realize that all this composting was turning into really delicious food. And I had been missing out. <laughs> I had just been over in the corner with the stench and rot um, and really could have been also, you know, luxuriating in, in these uh, fresh California-grown uh, produce. After college, Mai traveled to Southeast Asia, working on sewage and water sanitation projects for disaster relief and refugee camps. It led them to Myanmar, where Mai met people who had been living in refugee camps for decades. It made a mark on Mai seeing what languishing in these camps could do to people. After Mai's months-long stint in Southeast Asia, they decided to return back to San Diego. For the next couple of years, Mai worked in a farmer's market there, organizing programs for an area with a large Vietnamese population. Mai invited vendors who'd sell heritage produce that wasn't as readily available at Western supermarkets at the time, like sweet potato leaves, Thai chilies, and bitter melon. These are staple ingredients that my own parents grow in their home garden and cook with. They often saute sweet potato greens with garlic. With bitter melon, they hollow them out and stuff them with ground pork and glass noodles and cook them in a pot of soup. So the idea of not having easy access to these vegetables was a little heartbreaking for me. At the farmer's market, Mai remembers seeing how people reacted to a vendor selling fresh peanuts still in their pods. It was clear to Mai that providing these crops sparked life into people. People just grabbing up the tops of the stems as quickly as possible and getting the largest bundle they could get. And that, to me, was really a special sight to, to witness. Um, because of, I think one is the the joy that I saw and the delight in their faces that they would were gathering these sort of like precious items. Mai realized their life's purpose in those moments. They began growing Southeast Asian crops as a way to bring that joy and a sense of home to their people. They grew Vietnamese eggplant, bird-eyed chili peppers, and Vietnamese sponge gourd. Growing these crops meant a lot to Mai because they knew these seeds were some of the only things Vietnamese refugees were able to bring with them to the U.S. when they came over by boat. The story for many people is when they left, they might have left with a suitcase, um, in the case of boat people. But essentially, even if they left with a suitcase, probably most of the time it, it didn't really make it all the way in the voyage. So where people had stowed seeds, where they had put them in, pouches that they pinned to the insides of their shirts. Mai imagined many of them being right-hand dominant, meaning they would pin the seeds to their left lapel, close to their heart. It made Mai think about their mother's journey to America by boat and how it was a harrowing two weeks. Their mother faced storms and hunger. On that trip, one of Mai's cousins fell off the boat and died. The many experiences that people had and yeah, that these seeds still carry this heartbeat of theirs. Mai cultivated Southeast Asian crops on their farm and sold them through CSA boxes to customers throughout Northern California. 
But then, in 2015, something happened that almost took Mai away from farming altogether. I was driving to the area to, to pick up produce, and there was a semi-truck because it was a, you know, it's an, it's an warehouse area. And so coming into that zone, there are a lot of larger vehicles than what I was driving, which was a Honda Fit. Um, and so then this truck came and didn't see me and uh, hit me on the driver's side where I was. Mai ended up with a lot of pain. They couldn't do simple tasks like putting on a shirt or chopping vegetables to cook. It was a knock to my farm business. These injuries just compounded over time such that now, you know, I'm still dealing with the consequences of these old injuries. Growing the Southeast Asian vegetables Mai cultivated for their community became a challenge. They're highly perishable crops that need to be harvested quickly in a short window of time. They also grow close to the ground, so it was hard on Mai to bend over and squat in order to harvest. Mai had to make the difficult decision to put these crops on the back burner. That sense of belonging Mai had carved out for themselves was now painfully missing. It uh, very much affected my sense of self and purpose because I got into farming explicitly to grow Southeast Asian crops and to not be able to do that and fulfill this purpose that I thought I had uh, was a major, yeah, blow to me. But Mai found a way to keep farming. After the accident, Mai also began looking outside of their Vietnamese community and saw a way to help other refugees, like Afghans, connect to their culture through their crops. They turned their attention toward heirloom grains, which are harvested higher off the ground. While growing these grains came with their own endurance challenges, they were kinder to Mai's body. In 2018, Mai began growing Akmalinka, a grain found in Afghanistan and Kazakhstan. It's often referred to as a poulard wheat. It's a pointy wheat. Poulard means pointy, and it's quite hard. It's almost like a durum. Durum is usually used for pasta. So it's good for flatbreads, sort of quick breads. Flatbreads are the everyday bread for Afghans and are often served as an accompaniment to meals. Some are covered in nigella, sesame, cumin, caraway, or poppy seeds and baked in a hot tandoor oven. Others can be stuffed with a potato mash and be pan-fried and served alongside a coriander chutney and minty yogurt dip. As Mai was cultivating crops like Akmalinka wheat, they were able to share them with people like Bilal Sawari, a second-generation Afghan farmer based in Atlanta. Bilal was able to bring a sense of home to his mother as a recipient of Mai's wheat. A few years ago, Mai met Bilal while they were both working at a nonprofit that helps young farmers. Although they come from different cultures, with Mai being Vietnamese and Bilal Afghan, they connected over the fact that they both came from displaced peoples. Bilal's parents were Afghan refugees who came to the U.S. in 1979. Mai's connection with Bilal strengthened their resolve to help displaced people. Our connections, too, being these countries where the U.S. Uh, had a large presence and then how they backed out and sort of the impacts on our families and in a very fresh and terrible way, you know, hearing from Bilal how his family was impacted. It 
certainly sort of redoubles my desire to continue to grow crops that are for people who are facing violence and being displaced. Bilal was aware that Mai had been growing Afghan wheat. He told his mother about it. He ordered some of Mai's Chiram Blanc de Ma, which is a wheat variety that has flavors of pecans, honey, and fresh herbs. And his mother made some Afghan bread from it. Bilal was fascinated to see his mother light up and channel a memory of her past through the grains. It affected him, too. It just fascinates me that just the simple act of growing an Afghan grain uh, can then immediately like propel me back to Afghanistan. Bilal also noted that having access to heritage crops is comforting, especially to those in the diaspora. That theme of interconnectedness is so important to them that they realize that like all displaced peoples share something. Like we live in this diaspora, we are trying to uphold our own cultural values while being constantly challenged by Western media. The big picture for Mai is to welcome others who are making a new home in the U.S. and help them thrive. But Mai also recognizes that it was indigenous people who have been on their land for thousands of years and also have been violently displaced. One of Mai's farmer friends, Rowan White, a Mohawk woman, shares similar values in preserving cultural memory through heritage seeds. She's also a community leader and helps other Indigenous people unearth what has been lost. This is the story of Rowan White. The twists and turns in Rowan's life have taken her down the path of becoming a seed saver as a way to connect to her Mohawk heritage. My American name is Rowan White, but my Mohawk name is Dunyat Dahawe. And that was given to be by my grandmother, my dad's mom, because myself and my twin, we were born into a swirling snowstorm um, just over 40 years ago. So it was the very first snow of the year. And so my grandmother gave me the name Ganyat Dahawe, which means she's carrying snow. Rowan had to pave her own path to becoming a farmer and finding her sense of identity through saving and preserving seeds. She's originally from the Mohawk community of Aquasusne, a territory that straddles the New York State and Canadian border along the St. Lawrence River. Her family traces back to over nine generations in that area. So I come from a long, long line of people who've tended earth and seed and food um, and encoded that knowledge um, inside of stories and ceremonies. But in terms of my most immediate family, my great-grandparents were the last people in my bloodlines to sort of make their livelihood from the land um, and live on their homesteads um, in our home community of Okwesosne. Um, They were taken away to residential and boarding schools and acculturated and assimilated um, and educated In the late 19th century, the U.S. government established Native American boarding schools. They coerced thousands of indigenous youth to assimilate into American mainstream culture. Their own culture was stripped from them, and they were encouraged to abandon their traditional languages and practices. This traumatic event lasted for over a century. That's why it's so meaningful for Rowan to carry on her ancestral traditions of farming. My generation is that first generation to come back to the land. And my children um, have been raised on a farm since they were born. 
Even though Rowan's parents didn't farm, they were heavily involved in their community. Her father was a tribal attorney, and her mother worked with the Native American Rights Fund nonprofit. And so I think all of the adults um, in my life, my parents, my you know aunts and uncles and, and family friends, were very much in this larger conversation of how do we create pathways for Indigenous peoples to return back to their ancestral lands and to assert their rights in the face of colonization um, and acculturation. When Rowan was 17, she worked on an organic farm in western Massachusetts. Rowan's mentor at that organic farm gave her seed packets and a seed catalog. As she rifled through them on a dusty farmhouse floor, she realized all these seeds had stories about the lineage of the people who had cared for them. She wondered about her own lineage. As a Mohawk woman, I know that we are agricultural people, but I don't know the seeds and foods that fed my ancestors. And so that was this moment of, you know, sort of the aha moment of recognizing this question that I think I have been following that question ever since is following that inquiry of wanting to to know the seeds of my ancestors in an intimate way, in a, in a way that um, where I had an active relationship to them. After college, Rowan began building relationships with indigenous elders in Massachusetts. She gathered their ancestral seeds and held on to the stories she learned from them. In the Mohawk community, corn, beans, and squash form what's called the Three Sisters. It plays a major role in the Mohawk creation story. It's told that this trio of crops sprouted from the body of the daughter of the so-called original woman while she was dying in childbirth as a way to sustain her people. It's sort of a portrait of Indigenous resilience that those seeds and those stories and that cultural memory still exist. In 2006, Rowan moved from Massachusetts to Northern California with her husband for his work. She made sure to carry the ancestral seed bundles from her elders with her. Rowan would soon find herself in a new bioregion and community unlike Western Massachusetts or her Aquasesne community on the East Coast. After the break, will Rowan's ancestral seeds survive? Stick around. Eating great food is one thing. The prep and cleanup afterwards is, well, something else. That's where Kohler comes in. When prepping for recipes, you can tell the voice-controlled faucets to dispense measured amounts of water. Kohler's faucets also feature a sweep spray to quickly get any gunk off of your dishes. Even if your hands are messy, you can wave on and off the touchless faucets. That way, you can clean with ease. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Hey, Proof listeners, Kevin Pang here. I've got a secret to share. Mangoes are my all-time favorite fruit. I myself am Team Sliced Mango. My six-year-old, well, he's Team Hedgehog. He loves his mangoes cross-hatched and turned inside out. You know what I'm talking about. Our family loves mangoes because they're naturally sweet, tangy, and versatile. Eat them on their own, make mango lassi popsicles, dust it with chili powder, and you can even make savory dishes like mango curry chicken wings. Some recipes call for using unripe and half-ripe mangoes. Lucky for me, these amazing superfruits are available year-round. In fact, I'm going to walk out of this recording booth, head to the market, and buy a dozen mangoes right now. See you later! 
oh, 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 one more thing. Be sure to visit mango.org slash proof for tantalizing recipes and to learn more about the amazing mango. And now, back to our story. Initially, Rowan's seed bundles struggled in this new bioregion. Being lifted up out of a very, um, like, four-seasoned climate where we have all different seasons, the depth of winter, you know, all the way to um, the heat of summer, and coming into a place in the Sierra Foothills where we really largely have just two main seasons, which is wet season and dry season, um, and and a very different landscape. But over time, the seeds adapted and became stronger and more resilient in its new climate. In a way, it ran parallel to Rowan's life in this new place. I remember, it's like return to the earth, return to the soil, return to those rhythms and those seasons, and apprentice yourself once again to the way that they work in this new climate. A year after she arrived in Northern California, Rowan founded Sierra Seeds. It's the name of her organization and seed sanctuary that's 10 acres in the Sierra foothills. Rowan stewards rare indigenous seeds with a seed bank that now has over 500 unique crop varieties. These crops are indigenous and endemic to North America. There's corn, beans, squash, sunflowers, tobacco, herbs, and flowers. Hundreds of other indigenous communities have entrusted her with their seeds too, like the Tusuke and Santa Clara Pueblo in the Southwest and Anishinaabe communities of Fond du Lac and White Earth. She stores them in a seed bank called a kiva. Her fire-resistant kiva is a building with red clay walls, which provide a cool environment for her rows of corn cobs and jars of beans. The seeds have become her life's work and have helped her grow personally. All the wisdom, you know, alive, the seed songs and, you know, the ways of, of growing these seeds, keeping them alive. And for them to entrust me with those bundles of seed is the greatest gift and has continued to unfold into endless gifts and blessings in my life and for, for my children and for many others in my community. For Rowan, it's not just about preserving, but also rescuing important crops that could forever be lost to communities. Seeds aren't just seeds. They're gateways to understanding our cultural identities and customs. One of Rowan's seed elders, as she likes to call them, was able to secure a special cob of corn. It was perhaps the last of its kind, called the Mohawk Red Bread Corn. He got it from one of his elders in his Mohawk community of Gatnuage in Quebec, Canada. So it's this beautiful brick red um, corn, and all of our corn um, has a very distinct shape. It's um, kind of eight rows, you know, around around the corn, beautiful, pearlescent, shiny um, cobs. From the cultural memories Rowan and her Mohawk community have been able to stitch together, Mohawk red bread corn is believed to have been used in sweet cornbread and wedding feasts. In Rowan's community, the cornbread is boiled and shaped in rounds like dumplings. Normally, they're savory, and beans are mixed into them. But for wedding feasts, the Mohawk red bread corn is made into a sweet cornbread with strawberries mixed in. Rowan's seed elder grew dozens of these Mohawk red bread corn cobs and passed them along to other seed keepers like Rowan. Rowan grew an acre of it on her farm. About six years ago, 
she partnered with some organizations in the Hudson Valley in upstate New York. She and her Mohawk team planted rematriation gardens. Rematriation is a concept where women bring back seeds to their communities of origin. It made a huge impact. And then we ended up being able to send home, I think it was like three or 4,000 pounds of this Mohawk red bread corn. And now it's being shared widely in our Mohawk and larger Haudenosaunee communities. And it just, again, it just shows that just one person commitment to this one variety that has cultural significance in our community, you know, in just one generation, you go from that variety being on the threshold of extinction to now being something that's widely grown and eaten and shared in, you know, in our larger network. This kind of work is a form of resistance and revolution for Rowan. It's a way to show that she and her community are standing up against the dominant narratives of colonialism and acculturation. They still have vibrant relationships to their cultural seeds and foods, and that can't be taken away from them. Connecting to one's heritage through food is something Kristen Leach thinks about a lot. She's a friend of Rowan's and lives about 80 miles away. Kristen Leach is a Korean-American farmer who grows Asian crops at her Namu farm in Northern California. But she wasn't always intimately connected to her Korean heritage. I was born in Korea and then adopted when I was an infant to a really nice family on Long Island. And so I just grew up there, um, not involved in agriculture necessarily, but gardening a lot, uh, just at my grandma's house. Kristen grew up in an Irish Catholic family in New York, where she would eat corned beef and cabbage on St. Patrick's Day and cheered on Notre Dame for football. In her childhood neighborhood, the cultural makeup was mostly Irish, Italian, and Puerto Rican. She didn't really know any other Asian people there, something that played a role in her trying to learn more about her identity. It definitely felt a little isolating, but I think it also just made me maybe minimize like how much I even wanted to acknowledge for myself being Asian just because I could feel those around me trying to protect me, you know, out of love. So it wasn't until I was an adult that it just felt comfortable or I felt even okay acknowledging for myself that I wanted to reconnect with, you know, my heritage or explore what that meant. It wasn't until Kristen was 25 and living in Washington State after college that she became curious about her Korean identity through crops. She would see elderly Korean women grow produce that were distinct from other Asian ones. I just felt curious about the ways that different plants have that distinct sort of kinship with different human communities and the ways that just for, I think, some of the things I was learning about Korean food, There were just certain ingredients that there's no, like, substitute. Like, I think a lot of immigrants, like, could find something that approximated flavors that felt reminiscent of their homeland. Kristen grappled with questions about her identity as a transnational adoptee and found farming as the most positive way for her to engage with those questions. She had toyed with the idea of visiting South Korea a couple of times. One day, Kristen remembers hearing in the news about a Korean farmer who killed himself at a World Trade Organization gathering in Mexico. The suicide was an attempt to protest the WTO's impact on the livelihood of farmers. This news stuck with Kristen. She wanted to learn more about the plight that Korean farmers were facing. 
And I think it gave me a way to feel like I could travel back to Korea. Cause again, I think it was just sort of an intimidating proposition. I didn't really know like, why am I going back there? What am I hoping to find out or what am I hoping to learn? But I think thinking of going there and connecting with farmers and having farming be the bridge made it seem really feasible. In 2014, Kristen finally had the chance to travel to South Korea, the first time since she was an infant. When she was in Seoul, she stayed at a hostel that was for Korean adoptees. In the 1970s and 80s, there was a huge wave of Korean adoptees sent over to the U.S. The organization that ran the hostel also focused on helping others find their birth families. But Kristen had no plans to find her birth family on this trip. People would you know, kind of just in conversation, ask me like, yeah, where are you at in the process? And I just feel like I'm not any part of that process. I'm just here collecting seeds, actually. And I think people just thought it was so weird and funny. It was meaningful to meet other adoptees, but Kristen didn't think finding her birth parents would resolve any inner conflicts she had about her identity. She already had a large family in the U.S. with lots of cousins that she had great relationships with, and didn't have the bandwidth to bring in even more family. Also, Kristen didn't feel entitled to barge into her birth mother's life because she knew how emotional and complicated it would be for her. Instead, Kristen focused on connecting with her South Korean heritage through her quest to bring home crops from her birth country. She marveled at the biodiversity of crops in Korea. There were countless soybean varieties specific for making tofu or banchan, an assortment of small dishes that accompany rice in Korean cuisine. Soybean sprouts tossed in sesame oil and garlic, or soy-braised black soybeans, are common banchan dishes. Kristen also came to realize that farmers had been facing so many challenges to preserve that biodiversity. Over the years in South Korea, there had been land loss due to development. And there was also an influx of imported agricultural goods, which meant indigenous crops faced stiffer competition. The farmer who protested at the WTO gathering was fighting against free trade agreements that decimated local producers' livelihoods. Finally, Kristen had found a connection to her heritage, but it was also slipping away. And so I think it was just kind of gut-wrenching to have this moment of realizing like, wow, this place that I was born like is host to so many incredibly special crops that have evolved over these like long expanses of time in direct relationship with my ancestors who cared about all the different ways they would develop to prepare these different plants. It pained Kristen to see that so much of this biodiversity had already been on thin ice, and more of it was in danger of being lost forever. She set out to collect heritage seeds from Korean farmers during her three-week trip throughout South Korea. At first, it wasn't easy for Kristen to earn the farmer's trust. I was probably greeted with a, you know, legitimate type of skepticism. Like, one, I'm just like this weird-looking adoptee, like coming back to Korea, talking about farming. Kristen visited a research institute in the central part of the South Korean peninsula, where she learned about soy, rice, millet, and sorghum. Kristen was greeted by a group of men in suits. The men talked about how young people who are thinking about heirloom crops come from urban areas that don't know a lot about farming. Kristen felt like they were talking about her. And then at some point, one of the guys was like, let me feel your hands. And this is all being kind of interpreted. So I was like, turned to my friend. I was like, does he want to feel my hands? 
Kristen held out her hands. The men examined them and then began talking quickly to one another. There was a complete tonal shift. The men in suits took her to the seed bank and showed her all their varieties of crops. Evidently, Kristen had earned the group's trust. Never in my life has my like little crabby, like calloused hands served me <laughs> so well as acting as some sort of secret password to sort of gain some credibility to these researchers. They sent her home with soybean seeds of all varieties. When Kristen returned home to Northern California, she felt a lot of responsibility to keep these seeds intact. I just, you know, have never felt so much stress in planting any seed in my life as when I was like planting those soybeans that they shared. On her farm, Kristen would stare at the ground every day, making sure the seeds were getting all the nutrients they needed. It took her years to grow them, and four years before she even tasted them, because every single seed she harvested, she saved to replant. And so it was like years of growing something uh, where I was like, I don't even know what this tastes like at all. I'm just trusting them at this point. Today, Kristen doesn't even widely sell the soybeans grown at her farm. She mostly shares it with her community. She remembers asking the farmers if they wanted her to bank the seeds and send it back to them to preserve them. She was surprised by their response. They were like, no, don't bother sending it back. Like, make sure you just share them and that Korean people in the U.S. have access to them. And so that was like the main goal. And it just was sad and moving to me that they felt like the seeds could be better off somewhere else. Out of all the crops Kristen grows, one holds a particularly special place in her heart, the Korean perilla. One of the most common ways to use the Korean perilla leaf is in som. It's a popular dish where you use leafy vegetables like lettuce or perilla as a vessel to wrap a variety of fillings. You can wrap grilled meats, rice, and pickled vegetables like kimchi. Ours has that really kind of classic, it's heart-shaped leaf. So it's just pretty large leaf uh, used for, you know, wrapping rice or meat or fish. And again, yeah, the flavor is sort of inimitable, um, but I guess it's sort of licorice-y, like sort of like anise, um, and also minty and kind of grassy. The perilla propelled Kristen's life forward in a new way. When she moved from Washington to San Francisco in 2009, she began growing perilla on different farms where she was working. By the time she had a sizable patch, a friend suggested she bring it over to the three brothers who ran the San Francisco Korean-American restaurant, Namu. Kristen brought her perilla a few times to the restaurant, but she would get too nervous to speak to anyone. But one day, she finally worked up the courage to speak to Dave Lee, the youngest brother. And I just, you know, handed him the box. And as soon as he just kind of put his face down to before he even opened it, it's like he could smell what was in the box. And he was like, oh my gosh, like, did you grow this? After that, Kristen would bring the brothers different radishes and crops. Eventually, they helped her finance a sublease for farmland in 2012. She now grows Korean cucumbers, soybeans, and chili peppers exclusively for Namu Restaurant Group on her farm. Others have also benefited from Kristen's seeds in understanding their own culture through them. Kristen is a community leader through her second-generation seeds collective. 
There, she helps people connect to their cultures by teaching others how to care for these seeds. She also helps increase the seed stock of Asian vegetables. One of her community programs she started last year is called Seed Stewards. Through that, she encourages families to have intergenerational conversations about their food. That was what we built intentionally to be like kind of, um, you know, mixed families, but all kind of like rooted in like Korean, Vietnamese or Filipino um, communities. As part of her program, she used to give families CSA boxes with her crops. One of these box recipients was Christina Chung, a Korean-American designer based in Northern California. Christina had longed to connect to her own Korean heritage. Growing up, Christina's parents and grandparents tried to assimilate into American culture, so she only spoke English with them at home. The lack of Korean language made it hard for her to feel connected to her culture. But through Kristen, learning about Perilla helped reclaim her heritage. So Kristen was this amazing conduit, right? So she brought people of all many different Asian descents together to like look at and study and notice and reflect this this leaf, you know. In these group conversations as part of Kristen's Seed Stewards program, people would share stories of how they grew up with Perilla and their relationships to it. The Perilla leaf not only opened up doors for Kristen, but for her community members as well. Christina Chung, the designer, has a nine-year-old daughter named Jumi Saeed, who also has found a connection to her Korean culture through Kristen's Perilla. Here's Jumi with her dad, Arjuna Saeed, talking about her multicultural identity. I am black and white and Korean. I like to call it Malaysian. And I have a Korean name. There's, I don't know if I'm named after the two other Jumis in the world. And Jumi also felt that connection to her Korean culture. It opened her eyes to the diversity Perilla offered. So when we tried it and then like got more interested in it and ate it often, it gave us more like, wow, this is really good. But you get you can't find it at like Trader Joe's or like Safeway or something like that. So we started ordering online seeds. And we would plant our own perilla, and then we would have, like, a we would invite a bunch of people over for Korean food. Kristen tasked the kids in the Seed Stewards program to interview people in their community, mostly elders, about the crops. Jumi made a podcast episode about perilla with her dad, Arjuna, for the Park Day school he works at. In the episode, Jumi interviewed her Korean grandmother about the leaf. Here's Arjuna. And so it gave us the chance to connect with your Haguni, um, Jumi's grandma, um, and to interview her. And that was our first time as a family, like having an audio storytelling project where we're like really talking about Perilla, about Kinyip and the stories um, that come along with it. I'm having a deeper level of conversation with my Korean mother-in-law than because of seed stewards. Kristen entered Christina's family's life at a time when she was thinking about how to raise two kids who are Black and Korean. Seed stewards became a way they could all learn together. Here's Christina. It was this way to be able to like jump in and feel really proud of who we are, learn about the stories of, of really like lineage through seeds, 
in a way that was, uh, it didn't matter how old you were. It didn't matter how much Korean you knew or didn't know. Uh, it was this way that we could all learn together. Mai, Rowan, and Kristen are making it so that future generations have easier pathways to understanding their culture through seeds. For Mai, there's a finite amount of time they can keep doing the work they're doing. I get, in my lifetime, 40 tries. So <laughs> it's not like being a baker, you know, my colleagues in that world, right, where you can bake 40 loaves of bread in a week if you want. <laughs> you can get those 40 tries just uh, just in a few days, whereas I'm, I'm bound to our Earth cycles. But when Mai thinks about how the simple act of growing Afghan grains can help another family reconnect to their culture, it makes it worth it for them. It feels like in this greater scheme of where I only have 40 tries, that if I can be a part of a lineage that will sustain foods, that will help sustain people for a long time to come, then that's, it feels like I'm fulfilling not just a life purpose, but almost like my duty as a, as a fellow human being. For Rowan, she believes raising her children on a farm with ancestral seeds heals the intergenerational trauma that goes back many generations. It's also healing for her and her children. In my community, we have this phrase where we say we do not own the seeds, but we borrow them from our children. So it's our responsibility to make sure that their hands are ready to carry those seeds down for their children and grandchildren and those yet to come. Passing along this knowledge to future generations is the greatest way Rowan feels she can repay her elders who entrusted her with these seeds and knowledge. What is sort of my North Star, what tethers me is recognizing that I can be on that threshold of memory, that I can be one generation who said we didn't forget. We didn't forget the importance of these seeds. We didn't forget the importance of this cultural memory and that we get to be those, that bridging generation who, who, who ensures that that doesn't dissipate on our watch. And so that is part of me being um, in my full responsibility as a Mohawk woman in this modern time is to be one who cared for the seeds and stories in that way and also kept the love alive for seeds and stories in the hearts of um, the children and in our community. I always say that this work is sort of my trellis of hope, you know, in the face of despair, that I can look to the faces of these seeds and to this hopeful work in the garden. Kristen feels like she owes a debt to these seeds that she can never repay. The seeds have opened up a whole new world for Kristen that she never could have imagined as an adoptee growing up in Long Island. It's what keeps her going. They've made me feel like included and cared for in ways that I don't think I would have pictured feeling. They've introduced me to just so many meaningful people in my life. And I just think that there's just ways that I think seeing you know, like community pick up the produce, like seeing the produce getting used at somewhere like Namu. There's just so much joy with it. Thanks to Gene Trin for bringing us today's story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. 
And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cartarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton, Chester Gwazda, and Anya Gzeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composer theme music, additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Jen Margolis is our director of post-production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Mai, Rowan, Kristen, and everyone else who talked to Gene for this story. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Kohler, the National Mango Board, Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts, Fresh Pressed Olive Oil, and the Naked Lunch Podcast. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.